Hello and welcome to episode 251 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Curtis McHale. Hello. Philip Morgan. Hola. And I'm Jonathan Stark. This week we are going to talk about uh, listener questions. Well, I guess we're going to answer some listener questions, but just talk about them. We're going to talk about our listeners behind their back. Exactly. We have questions about our listeners. <laughs> we're Yet we're talk. publishing the podcast. That's not behind their back then, is it? <laughs> Great. So we have a bunch of, a bunch of questions uh, that have come in through really all of us. And I am fascinated to hear the answers to, uh, to the ones of these that I'm not familiar with, I guess. Um, let's see. Should we just kick it off, you think? Let's do it. All right. I want to start with one that, that you sent in, Philip. Someone asks, Competitor X has a positioning focus similar to one I'm interested in. How do I find out if it's working for them? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. So if you check them out at the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Freelancer Show, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. Uh, you ask them. <laughs> I'll provide a little more detail on that, though. <clears throat> so I, I'm in a position often, uh, no pun intended, I'm in a position often where I'm giving people advice about positioning. And sometimes I'm the, actually the person who's asking this question is like, okay, you're um, considering you know, narrowing down in this way or specializing in this way or focusing on this market vertical or whatever it is. Um, there's another company out there that's already doing that. The first thing that I try to make sure to say is that's a, probably a very good thing that there's somebody else out there already with this focus. That's a good thing because um, it can be great to be first to some market to establish essentially a monopoly in that market. But the fact that someone hasn't already done it can be a, a negative indicator. It can mean that you're focusing on a market where there's no demand for what it is that you do. That's like warning flag number one. Or the market's not mature enough to need what you do. Like, um, 
you know, it's like a kind of an early developing thing and they, they haven't even gotten to the point where they need outside expertise like you provide. Or it's, I mean, this is unlikely, but it's too small or too specific um, and it just doesn't make sense to, to specialize in that way. So the, actually the absence of some kind of quote-unquote competition in, in a positioning focus is usually worries me a little bit unless some other things check out. So if there's a competitor who's already focused on whatever, like uh, I'll actually give you an example from my, uh, from my uh, positioning accelerator program called today. I've got a guy there who's considering, um, and, and this makes him so nervous, and, and I don't blame him, that he would do this under a different brand name, but considering uh, specializing in marketing services for cannabis companies, you know, companies who are providing medical or recreational cannabis it's it's an, sort of an emerging market here in the United States, and I think it may make sense. And I, and in fact, I have seen marketing companies already with that specialization. So what if you wanted to reach out to them and simply say, how is that specialization working out for you? What I've had success with, uh, and I've done this multiple times, now I've done it as an intermediary on behalf of my clients, but I think this could work just as fine uh, just as well if you are uh, reaching out directly to them on your own behalf. You simply say through email, um, I'm interested in, in learning how your specialization on X, in this case, uh, how your focus on, um, on cannabis industry companies is working out for you. I am considering entering this, um, this market myself but I haven't yet, and I believe your experience in this market could save me a ton of time and wasted money. If you'd be willing to answer a few questions, just hit reply and send me back a, a quick yes or thumbs up. And in, I haven't tried this you know, a lot, but in the few times I've tried it, it, I've just been surprised with how willing some people are to say, sure, yeah, I'd love to help, a, you know, help somebody else out. You know, maybe we'll be in competition or maybe we'll refer work to you because of some reason. It, it really, whether people respond positively to that kind of outreach tends to depend on their worldview and whether they see competition as a, as a sort of fearsome thing or not. So yeah. um, that's how you do it. You just email them and you ask. Clever. <laughs> I know, so devious, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's so true, though, that that there are plenty of people out there that don't see business as a zero-sum game. And, right. and like you started off by saying, having some obvious competition, you know, McDonald's across the street from a Burger King is a good thing because it's like the people are obviously selling hamburgers here. So if you, you know, in a case where you do just reach out to a bunch of people – I would think that the most advanced ones, the ones that have been there the longest or seen the most established are probably the most likely to get back to you because they won't see you as competition. It's more, more likely that they won't. Or won't, won't see you as a threat. I mean, competition, yeah. is, technically you'd be competition, but you wouldn't be a threat. Right, exactly. And I've found that there's almost always, in, in this kind of a space, so like we're talking about freelancers here, so in this kind of space, there's almost always some easy point of differentiation where your ideal clients are just different than the other person's ideal clients, or it will certainly turn out that way, or you might do on purpose. Yeah, so exactly. It, as, yeah, so I guess I'm just trying to enforce 
that as crazy as it might sound to just ask them and, and not expect to get the door slammed in your face, it's, it's totally doable. Yeah, their ideal client might be in companies with 50 or more people. Yours might be 25 or less. You're not, I mean, you're not even technically competition in that, in that sense. Your referral, right. you can potentially be referral partners. And, you know, as I think you and I both like to say, Jonathan, this, this whole business is a relationship business. So the strength of, a lot of people recognize that the strength of their business is really in directly proportional to the, the size of, and quality of their network. So a lot of people will just see it as a networking opportunity to talk to you. Mm-hmm. The referral thing is a big deal, too. I, I know a, a web design firm who focuses on sort of smaller sorts of projects, you know, maybe in the $5,000 range. Mm-hmm. And they established relationships with bigger firms who would never touch work at that price point. And they are book solid with referrals from these larger firms because the larger firm doesn't want to just say no to prospects. Uh, or to existing clients that have a small project that they don't want to take on, but they, you know, they want to give them something and not just slam the door in their face. So they get referred to this, you know, air quotes, a smaller firm, you know, or this firm that specializes in smaller projects and everybody's happy. Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's, there's size of the client. There's, with software developers, maybe you talk to someone who focuses on the exact same market, but they're a .NET shop and you're a Ruby on Rails shop. That that's a pretty natural um, referral partnership, uh, potentially uh, in the making. There, there's lots of points of differentiation beyond just what your positioning focus is. Yeah, and I refer e-commerce like payment gateway stuff to one guy, and he refers any theme work to me because he doesn't want to do it. Yeah, and I don't feel like doing the payment gateway or, or Mailchimp or something like that. Right. The API integration stuff. So it's a good. Good balance for both of us. Yeah, yeah. There's one last point I think is worth making, which is is that looking at someone's website and seeing that they are doing things in a particular way or they've positioned themselves in a particular way does not mean it's working. So I think talking to them is pretty important. Um, I, I definitely see students who they're like, oh, well, this website, is, you know, is Good, I guess is that it's as vague as that. This website is good at selling this kind of thing that I want to sell. Uh, I do it a little bit differently. We're not direct competitors, but I'm basically going to copy this site because I think it's good. I like the way it looks, and I think it's going to sell. But if you don't know it's working, if you don't have some reason to know that it's working, you could be copying something that doesn't work. So finding out is, I think... Uh, maybe it might feel a little awkward to certain people, but don't just copy stuff that you assume is working. It might not. Yeah. I, you know, when I was in the sort of <clears throat> the last days of doing my content Sherpa, which was this productized service I had for a while, <clears throat> um, clients would subscribe and to, to me, <laughs> they would subscribe to me and I would write content marketing for them on a recurring basis. I, I remember speaking a lot to Brian Castle, uh, who launched a, what you can what what in the end was a better better version of what I was doing, something called audience ops, and you know we talked a lot and I just there there wasn't anything I would not tell him about the good and the bad of of that service model. So not everybody is going to be as willing as I am to to share those those kind of details, but I think enough people are that 
even if it's not a market position, even if it's like some service you see somebody uh, selling online that you admire and you want to create something similar, why not reach out to them and see what they've learned about it? They, they could save you six months of learning curve very easily by telling you something like, don't do this if you don't like managing writers, <laughs> to use myself as an example, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, because that's essentially your value add is selling the service and managing a team that actually does it. Well, if you don't like managing the team, uh, you might want to think twice about doing this. Excellent. Next question. Sound good? Yep. I like this one from Curtis. What boundaries do you have between work and family relationships? How do you work that out? I guess I'll start off with that one. That, that one actually came up recently because I emailed about it in my newsletter after turning down a speaking engagement uh, on re- fairly short notice, right around a week notice, um, because we have an internal boundary rule that I don't go do speaking engagements uh, more than once a week is one of them, and we don't hire a babysitter. And then my wife had an emergency board meeting to go to, so that meant I had to cancel and got called all kinds of terrible names by the person. And, uh, yeah, just stuck with my boundary and said, I'm always going to choose family, um, over top of that. So then I had a lot of other questions around the boundaries that we set out together as the family. Wild. What about you guys? I consciously, when I started my business, I consciously didn't separate my work calendar and my work email from my personal calendar and personal email which was a pretty big, um, from a sort of a philosophical standpoint, was a pretty big decision. I, I have, my answer to this is actually terrible because I don't even know what my boundaries are. Yeah, I don't think it's so much calendar, right? Like I technically have a work calendar and a family calendar. The reason that works for me is then Calendly doesn't see like the things booked and my wife's just like, she's going to an appointment with the kids. I don't need to do anything about it, right? But it's still on my calendar. So if I went to call home, I'd be like, oh, she's not home, right? Or I guess now that I'm back in the home office, I, you know, why is it silent downstairs? (laughs) Um, But even just boundaries in general, right? Like do you, right, I get up early bunch of mornings a week uh, and then there's at least one morning a week where I don't because I'm here with the kids in the morning and that helps my wife's week go better because she gets the relief of that right or you know there's lots of other boundaries that you can put in the family I mean I'm home at four o'clock I don't do any speaking engagements or anything on Friday nights unless it's like a travel away thing because that's family pizza night (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we have we've sort of come to a place where we've got de facto, I don't even want to call them rules, but like behaviors. But uh, we've never discussed it really. One thing that I did explicitly say, like, came out and said to both clients and you know my family and publicly was that I wasn't going to do any more speaking engagements. Uh, Jeez, I lose track of the years, but I think it was last year. I think last year was my last speaking engagement where I would fly somewhere to speak. Uh, so, you know, I still do paid internal things, but no more, no more of that conference circuit thing because it's just, it, it's just too, 
it, it just became too much. Like now that we've got two kids, it's just, and you know, got dogs and they're old and they need a lot of assistance. It's just way too much for one person to deal with. And yeah, yeah. The, I got the it. benefits are the benefits are just not there. It's nice to fly around, go to San Francisco and hang out and like see friends and colleagues and stuff, but it's just not a priority. I'm always excited the first morning when I wake up and then I didn't wake up with like a kid whacking me in the head being like, dad, can I do whatever? And I look at my watch and it's, you know, five 30. Um, but then the second morning I'm like, yeah, I miss the kids anyways. Yeah. So I've actually yeah. had a few times where I've taken uh, my oldest uh, out to like a local networking event and like, she's coloring in the corner and hanging out and people are meeting her. I've had a few people question that and I was like, well, she gets to see some work then she gets to be out and I will always choose family. It's good to know that up front, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Another, another boundary we set actually kind of the other way than these ones is that I, my phone is in do not disturb mode all day. So my wife can text me and be like, the kids are doing something dumb that I really can't do anything about anyways. Um, Cause if I stop in the middle of the day, most times it's just, you know, stealing work time or family time later. Cause I stop the work, do more stuff later. And uh, if there's a real emergency, she can call me. That's one we work out because text messages do not come through in do not disturb mode, but the VIP phone calls do. Interesting. That actually stems back from like when we first, just just as she was pregnant with our first kid and coming into the office like 20 times in two days until I gave her money and told her to go away, go away and have <laughs> coffee, which we laugh about now. And she even laughed then because she you know, got the, like, she just can't keep interrupting because if she interrupts all the time, I'm not going to get enough done to take time off when we have the kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose the takeaway is that you should have one. You know, there should be, there needs to be some kind of balance. But um, I, the specifics of it are so highly personal that you know it well, comes down to just sort of like know, being intentional about it, right? So, just yeah. as how intentional are you about your business? Often, very intentional. How intentional are you about like meshing the family part into that? often you just let that ride. And if you treated your business like you treat your family a lot of the time, you'd have a failed business, right? Sure. The switching costs in the family are much higher, though. <laughs> yeah, kidding. yeah, yeah. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Obviously, you know. There needs it's something to be- I've been going on, too, like recently, at least with my email list and with what I'm writing, is that like if you succeed in business and like you fail a family and that blows up, then you still failed. Yeah, right. Um, I'm thinking about like how this question applies to me. I think there's a couple semi-interesting stories to share. Like, I don't know, it was, um, gosh, I guess it's been six months now. I started to feel like I was, this is less like per se about family. Like my family is my wife and our pets and and Mm. my extended family who don't live here. So they don't really. Yeah, yeah. place demands on my time, right? Which is actually kind of nice. Mine live across the country too, so <laughs> I, I don't have to say no to every to anything. Right? Yeah. It's um, yeah. So anyway, um, I, I I just start felt like I was losing my edge. A lot of what I do, at least to market myself, is talk to people, like podcast guesting, and like brain work and deep thinking work. Right. And I I felt like I was losing my edge in those activities because of my work schedule. So I uh, I reduced the number of days that I work per week. And like that was, I guess, sort of reactively setting a a boundary 
and it helped. Uh, but it, but it, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting, like maybe that other people can relate to is I felt like I was going to have to give up something that was important on the business side to accomplish something else that was important on the not business side. Do you, do you deal with that, Curtis? How, how did you navigate that? It's kind of feeling like you're trading one thing for another. No, I think you are in seasons, right? Before we had our second kid, uh, which is an end of January baby, I worked like from October to December extra, basically. Mm -hmm. I got up every morning and my wife bought in for me being around less, but then I took off from like December 20 something, 20th, we'll say, to like February 15th. I taught a four-day class in Vancouver, so I was gone for four days in there while her mom was out as well. But other than that, I was off for a long season and like totally just doing family. I did email here and there, and that's really it. I didn't have any client work. I didn't take any calls. So and even to get our business off the ground, it was the same way. My wife, before we had kids, just agreed for six months to basically do everything around the house. So I'd come home and put my stuff down, walk upstairs and work. She'd call me when it was dinner. I'd eat. I'd walk away from the plate after putting it in the sink. And she did all of that for six months to get the business off the ground so that I had the time. And again, in there, we set the boundary. Those Fridays was still our night. You're saying use the magic of planning <laughs> to, make, yeah. to make things work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like agree on it, right? We agree, you know, how many, how long is this going to work for? And mm -hmm. we, re you know, we come back, right? You have, you know, you have a weekly or bi-weekly mastermind meeting, but then, you know, do you even date your spouse? Or do you have, when you do that, do you actually even talk about like what things are going on with the family? Or do you just like, you know, you go out and you watch a movie or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. get takeout and watch a TV, like that's not... That's good, and that's good time. But like I said, if you if you were as unintentional with your business as you are often unintentional with your relationships, then you'd be sitting on failed relationships, right? Mm. Or sort of on a failed business. Indeed. I feel like piping in and adding that the one of the maybe maybe not one of maybe the biggest benefit of ditching hourly billing, as I'm often beating the drum for, is that it disconnects your time from your money. Yep. So you can work less and make more. It's like without the, the, the people I speak with who are, you can just tell that they're in that desperation phase where they're just like, ah, I'm living hand to mouth. I'm working my tail off trying to get these billable hours in, uh, chasing clients for checks, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And it's just like, you know, I get these, these emails on a regular basis, like where people are at the breaking point and they just don't like, like, how does it all end, you know, in a way that's not horrible? <laughs> how does it not end in a, in a way that uh, explodes in their face? And the answer is just stop trading your time for money. Like you need to, just, you just, you know, I'm not going to go down the whole rabbit hole of value pricing and all that, but, but that's the solution. And you can work a lot less and have more time for personal and relationship stuff. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you don't have a relationship for kids or pets or whatever. You still don't want to be working around the clock just because you, you can't. still have friends though, right? 
Like, uh, not, no, I don't, Curtis. No, you don't. Well, <laughs> but you have kids. Jerk. That's the problem. Right? I, I also don't have any other friends I get to hang out with. Uh, my, you guys, no one else. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so my online buddies. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm to- I'm just kidding. But like, you know, I, uh, whatever. I go to karate. I go to a personal trainer. I do all these things that are purely personal. And, you know, even if you don't have all of those sort of family things, you've got to recharge your batteries sometimes. And you can't just work around the clock and think that, you know, oh, I'm getting ahead because I, I you know, I had a $10,000 week because you worked 80 hours or 100 hours. That's not, it's just not, there's no future in that. No, substituting volume of work for effective work, right? Yep. Which is another lie we easily tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, should we move on? Is this horse dead? Beaten? Gone? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's see here. Oh, I love this one. I am looking forward to hearing the answer. It is, can I become a preferred vendor for a PE, personal equity, or VC firm, and they intro me to their investments? So um, this is a kind of a... A, a synthesized question from a number of different sources. Um, so c- could you find some investor, private equity, venture capital, some form of investor who thinks you're the most amazing iOS developer that they've ever come across, and then they sort of install you into their clients as needed? Is that, is that pretty clear about what, like what the question is? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I think so. It's... Okay. It's almost like an agency model in a way. Right, not, right. Not quite, but kind of. Right. In other words, could could the company that just invested, let's say, $10 million in some company say, you need to use this iOS developer for this app, um, and, and that is you, and all of a sudden sales is like happening automatically. These, these people who have a lot of power over somebody else are saying, you got to use this company. Um, and I say it's a synthesized question because I've always wondered if this would be a viable way for certain types of specialists to get referrals, basically, get very effective referrals. And actually, uh, met a guy recently who um, has had this kind of arrangement. For him, it happened more or less through, uh, basically through luck. You know, he um, either through networking or, or somehow met a uh, somebody who works at a private equity firm and, and they routinely have done this for him. So this, I, th- I have seen this work or indirectly through somebody else. I also <laughs> in the past week have been reading Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and he explicitly recommends against uh, bringing consultants into startups. He's not the only voice out there giving startups advice, but I think he's one that a lot of startups are going to listen to. And a lot of startup investors are going to listen to because of his track record. And um, he explicitly recommends against startups being brought into, uh, sorry, consultants being brought into startups because there's a cultural mismatch. The consultant's not going to feel that frothy passion that the <laughs> that a full-time employee would. And there's a incentives mismatch because um, he's very big on motivating people through a, a long-term incentive of um, of equity rather than through a uh, short-term incentive of high salary. And he's, and that's exactly the opposite of what a consultant's going to want to do, which is to get paid up front for whatever value they, they can create, whether it takes, you know, two minutes or two years for that value to be realized in the form of 
uh, a startup exit. So um, I, I guess what I, I can say, there's no easy answer to this. Like it could work. I have seen it work. I, I just don't think it's like going to be even on the top 10 of things that you would pursue as, as a viable way to generate new business. And also the, the side benefit, Jonathan, I think is that, and this is why I was sending you screenshots of certain pages from that book is because it, it exactly corresponds with advice I hear you giving people to kind of steer clear of startups. They're, they're not anywhere close to an ideal client for, for most people. Yeah. And, and by startups specifically talking about, you know, not including Uber and Facebook, those are not startups anymore. So, you know, they, they have a business model, they have a revenue stream mm-hmm. talking about that kind of, you know, the, the ones that's the ones that are still very early stage. So early stage startups and the, I'm curious what the person you said there, you had an example of someone who kind of got lucky and this did mm-hmm. work for them. I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to take a wild guess that the thing that they do is not core to what the startup is building and is instead some kind of plumbing that they just need to have, or, uh, it's, it's not, uh, it's almost like, well, well, go ahead. Tell me if I'm, if, if I'm anywhere near, right. I don't know. I wish I knew so I could, um, so I could say, but I, I actually don't know. He was kind of describing the sort of shape of the arrangement, but I, I failed to ask about, like, so tell me the names of specific startups you've worked with. And again, it's not startups, it's companies that have been bought by a private equity firm, which is a little different than venture capital in That's that they, they may be buying going concerns. Right. You know, established businesses, in other words. So again, a little different, but close enough that I thought it was was worth talking about. What I was trying to get at with a little drama, failed, failed <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, um, was that if you, if you, I, I think, you know, this is an exception to the rule. You're right. I, I generally, generally wave people away from early stage startups as clients, but there are some notable exceptions to this. And it's when you do something that is a very sort of, sort of a one timey thing and isn't part of their core competency, because if anything that you do as a consultant is, is considered something that they should be building, they're not going to want to hire it out. They're going to want to have you internal. They're going to want it to be something that can be sold later. That's the whole point. The whole point is to sell the company later. So they're gonna they're not gonna want to invest stuff in into uh, they're not gonna want to outsource core pieces of their their valuation. So you know if you do something like I don't know uh, accounting for tech startups, you see what I mean? Like it's not it's not um, like they don't care. That's not something they're gonna sell later. They're not gonna put a you know in their prospectus like or I'm just making up words now, but. It, it, they're not going to put in there. Oh, and we've got this like you know amazing accounting talent in house in in our VR goggles startup. That's just like plumbing. So so that's an exception. Perhaps that would work for people. But you know if you if you do like complicated Bluetooth integration between medical devices and iOS. And the comp, and that's a core thing to a particular uh, medical device startup company. It's highly unlikely that they're going to agree to any arrangement that doesn't include being able to sell you later. 
Yep, I agree completely. The The thrust of Peter Thiel's arguments about this are more cultural than uh, than what we're talking about here, but it just adds weight to what you're saying um, because it's like, you know, uh, two reasons now not to not to hire some kind of specialist. Um, one is the technical reason. They, they need that expertise in-house, and the other is these cultural motivation uh, incentive reasons. Um, I, I'm just kind of riffing here, but really if, if you're a some sort of specialized uh, consultant, let's say, or software developer operating as a sort of consultant, your competition really, when you're focused on tech startups, is um, is pretty fierce because it's it's employees who aren't having to bear the cost of marketing themselves the way you are. So they have essentially twice as much time as you do <laughs> to go deep into technical skills, and they tend to have uh, th- this sort of structural incentive to uh, just pick up a crazy variety of um, unrelated skills. So it, it's actually kind of from a competitive perspective, it's the, the deck is stacked a little bit against you if your if your focus is text early stage tech startups because they just have uh, you know people throwing themselves very talented people throwing themselves at them. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. I actually have one of my clients who isn't doing this with VCs, but is partnered with a local bank and she does cybersecurity stuff. And if the people show up to her course and start using her with their security, they get slightly more favorable terms on their bank loans. And they have to pay for the course and pay for her services, but the loans are large enough that it is worth using her. And it's also like, you know, if you looked at, uh, if they do their security wrong, then like it's a, big detriment to the business so that's been a good deal for her and like the courses alone are profitable let alone the consulting she gets out of it wow that's super interesting yeah gold mine um, yeah it was great when we talked about it she was we were talking about pricing even and it was like you know even if you only have 10 people show up like if you do this four times a year that's still like more than you earn right now oh gold yeah mine. you're right plus any consulting so if you get one person a year you're like you're great because the consulting is you know six figure consulting a year really on top how, of the how course. Did, how did um, how did she set that up initially? That, uh, the that bank initially actually, the bank. yeah, the bank actually was talking about uh, cybersecurity stuff, and and she heard a consultant that they were talking to at some network mixer going off, and she <laughs> charged in and said that's not right, and shut them down. Basically, <laughs> she was pretty bold like that, which is good. It just drives her insane when she hears the like someone giving poor advice. Mm. And so then she got to talk to one of the partners right there mm. and show that she knew her stuff. So, and that, yeah. And then they actually suggested what about doing, you know, more, more security work with our people, which, you know, range from uh, some, something like a tech startup, probably not early stage 
um, but other yeah other businesses uh, stuff in the healthcare industry right because mm-hmm. the security of their records are all ultimately fairly similar. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. IRL networking mm-hmm. for the win. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Next question. Let's do it. I've been working on my positioning statement for over a month and I just can't seem to settle on anything. Do you have any advice? This question I actually, actually oh, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I always advise real word net, networking because it lets you try out like your positioning statement or variations of it like 15, 20 times a night. Yep. And you can and, see like the glaze over look yeah. or the oh yeah, yeah. tell me more. Or if you finish it off and you're like, that was terrible, I hated that, then just try one of the other variations you have. That's mm-hmm. always been the best way that I found even as I adjust mine and, and explain it to people has been the best way for sure. That whole, you know, in real life thing that we should do probably. <laughs> so I, I, this question actually came in through me and there were some more specifics to it that are worth sharing before Philip completely <laughs> answers this. <laughs> but the uh, I totally agree with what Curtis just said. Saying it out loud to a person solves a lot of problems because pe- the, and, and in this pe- specific case and in many others that I've seen, people tend to get too flowery and sort of they try to be more persuasive and hand wavy and hyperbolic. And it gets it, on paper somehow it's on paper, you know, on your screen, it gets somehow it gets away from a lot of people. They go that direction like they're copywriting. And then as soon as you would go to say that to someone, you'd feel like an idiot. I mean, it's just like comically abrasive to to spiel out, you know, a hundred words of, you know, conjunctions and and hyperbole. So what I, in, in my case, what I did to help clear this up for the person was to suggest that they view it as an internal thing that informed things like headlines and what they might put on their business card and their other marketing materials, but it didn't need to be persuasive or flowery. It just needed to be clear and simple. And if you were ever going to use it verbatim, it would probably be in the cocktail party scenario where someone says, Oh, what do you do? It's like, Oh, I I help credit unions increase member engagement. Really? I'm on the board of a credit union. How do you do that? It doesn't, you know, it, it should be something that you would actually say, in, in my humble opinion. And that did the trick for him. He was like, oh, I, I know exactly what it should be then. And boom, 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 all done. In my not so humble opinion, you are correct, sir. Um, <laughs> Give that man a cigar. <laughs> it, when I provide people with templates to use so they don't have to look at a blank sheet of paper and they're thinking about a position statement. The templates that I provide are like, uh, they're like caveman grunts versions of what you're warning people not to do. So it's like websites for cosmetic dentists. Like that's one of the, I mean, that's a filled in version of the template. So, I mean, that's not even a full sentence, right? It's just so uh, simple and basic that I think it helps counteract the tendency that you, that a lot of people do have because as soon as they it's, it's like a mindset as soon as someone thinks they're doing something about marketing they get all these ideas from what they've seen other people do that some of those ideas are not very helpful so 
you're absolutely right. It just, um, if you, if you have to look somebody in the eyes and say it, you will know instantly <laughs> if you're on the right page or not. I actually had a, a previous strategy client who sort of spontaneously came up with that idea of just, you know, um, kind of AB testing, if you will, different positioning statements at a meetup where you, you know, you're kind of forced to introduce yourself over and over again. He found it super useful and I think others have as well. Because you just you just know right away if if you've missed the mark, you'll feel it. You'll feel like an idiot <laughs> for even saying yeah, it. Exactly. You'll find that you can't even remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's comical. Yep, yep. Like you can't remember your own. Never mind, you know, sort of the person hearing it. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, sort of angle on that question. I've been working on it for over a month and I just can't seem to settle on anything. And I wonder, this sometimes happens with folks who have limited previous experience. Like maybe they, they got into freelancing and kind of got lucky because they, uh, like their previous employer, hired them as a freelancer. So technically they're a freelancer, but they never had to do any business development and the bulk of their experiences with one type of client. Is that relevant in this case, since you know the person who asked the question, Jonathan? Uh, that, that'd be an interesting thing to talk about. But in this particular case, he was trying to come up with a headline for everything. I like see. a headline that would work everywhere. And he couldn't do it because it's impossible. Right. That's the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. You're trying to find a headline that works. I'm kind of paraphrasing Seth Godin here, but that works almost nowhere, except where it's, it's like a home run. <laughs> Well, I always go with too, like come up with that quick headline, but then tell a story about what you did, right? Mm. So I'll say I help businesses, you know, not sound dumb to their to their users. And they'll go, what? And I'll say, well, and I'll explain like at one night I pulled out the web shop and I said, this web shop, look at it. It says, we build unthinkable sites. Do you want a site no one even imagines? And like I walked through their brochure and said like basically why it wasn't great. And they said, oh, that's great. We should talk to you about you know, speaking better to our members and getting our site up updated. Okay, good. Nice. Yeah, uh, th that's actually kind of related to my standard advice for writing uh, a homepage on your website is if you can tell a story about a client you helped, that is for most people. The Whatever comes out of that copywriting process will be ten, between 10 and 5 million times better than if they just talk <laughs> about themselves. <laughs> At least 10 times better. Based on your scientific study, right? <laughs> yes, based on me having looked at a bunch of sites where people took the opposite approach, which is like, how can we make ourselves seem interesting but without ever talking about our clients? And guess what? You can't. You, you just talk about how much stupid coffee you drink and... Uh, you know, your interest in underwater basket weaving. It actually it literally upsets me when I, I see sites <laughs> like that. So anyway, just talk about a, a success story instead. It, it, I think for most people who are not great copywriters, it, it'll be a better result. Anyway, I do find that people, when they have just started freelancing and they get excited about the idea of, specializing in some way, picking a focus, they, they have a harder time doing it. It's not impossible to do, but it is harder because you don't have that sort of canvas of prior experience um, to draw on. And your intuition is that by making a choice this early with this little experience under your belt, you're going to be missing out on something good. 
The reality is you're going to be missing out on about five years of frustrating um, mediocre business development <laughs> if you don't choose. And so I literally have advised people to print out a list of um, potential focuses and throw a dart at it because I, th I think in, in many cases that's better than not making a choice because not yeah. making a choice condemns you to really difficult uh, marketing. And the reason most people won't believe me is that most people get a, a sort of bank account. They get like a debit card handed to them when they start out uh, freelancing. And that debit card has about two to three years of good luck in it of like just pinging in their network and, you know, things kind of falling into place. So most people aren't God. interested in hearing that a dartboard would be better than their own uh, decision-making process uh, that soon. But I think it's true. Well, it's the difference between a decision and no decision. Right. Not a good decision and a bad decision. Good point. You're absolutely right. And, ah, and no so decision doesn't work out well. The, the debit card analogy is great. It, yeah. they have, everybody hits that. It seems so common. Not everybody, but it seems so common that... There's sort of this, well, there's a built-in story. Bob went solo. He finally quit his job at IBM and he's going to go out and do whatever, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to do .NET on his own or Java mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever IBM specializes in. And wow, oh, cool. And it's like, and there's this story and word of mouth happens in the network, but the network gets depleted after a year or two. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, um, now what? They're not getting any leads anymore. Right. And sh shaking the, you know, shaking the same tree or rattling the same chains, it doesn't work anymore. So now what? And you've, and, and weirdly, you've got all of this kind of, you've enforced in your mind that uh, being a generalist, let's say, let's lump it all under generalist, being a generalist can work because it's been working. But like you said, it's the luck debit card that you, you just spent and yeah, blew through it. Um, yeah, well, I don't know. What else are we missing about that? Uh, I guess the last thing I would say about that question is um, it takes time. Like, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this. I, I do everything I can to try to help people accelerate the process, which, you know, sometimes involves literally crazy stuff like, you know, throw a dart and see if that changes your thinking or opens your mind to some new possibility. But even in the best of circumstances, it can take time. This is a, this is an important decision. It's, it's a, you know, it, it's the core decision. I think what's your business about uh, helping people is not a good enough answer. It's got to be more specific than that. So it, it may take some time. And, and also there's a kind of change in your internal mental and emotional landscape that doesn't happen immediately for most people. So uh, I guess the other thing I would say to that question is, um, you know, be, maybe be nice to yourself. Maybe don't expect one of the more important decisions you make in your life to just have, take a month. Maybe it's going to take three months or six months and that might be just fine. Mm. It's so hard to train ourselves to do that, right? Because <clears throat> we're so used to everything being instant. You don't write a letter and to your friend and then expect to get it like back in a month. We are talking across a country border right now, right? It's off, often Reuben and like, who knows where Reuben is off in China. Asia or something, right? <laughs> and that's... He's, he's on a special assignment. We can't talk about where he is. Um, <laughs> no, you, you, but you're absolutely right. Bunker. Yeah, we, 
I mean, one of the <laughs> what I think one of the more interesting definitions of intelligence is is simply the ability to focus on something for you know as long as you want, basically. Maybe that's one of the uh, prerequisites to high intelligence. Anyway, I, I think it's kind of like that with positioning. It, sometimes it just takes focus over time. It's not instantaneous. One thing I'll add is that a pattern I've seen over and over never really went fully conscious with me till now. You just the way you were talking about that, but is is that when I finally get a student to pick whether it's a dart or I've never advocated the dart, but maybe I will um, just kind of force someone to be like, look, put your chips on this one. Like just, we've done no research. You haven't, I haven't, I don't know, but this one sounds the most compelling to me. If we were at a party and you told me this was your value proposition, it's the one that would generate the most questions from me. It's the most generates the most interest. So just do it. And, and then step two is like, okay, you pick that one. So start researching and get the language of the, the ideal buyers and so on and so forth. And, and they do some research and they find out that it's a dead end, but they get it now. Now they get like, okay, I do need to pick one of these. I picked the wrong one probably, but some of the other candidates are worth looking into. And it seems like it kind of like the, the reaction in my experience hasn't been, oh, I shouldn't, this didn't, this one is a dead end. Therefore I shouldn't pick a focus. It's more like I picked the wrong one. Let me just change to a different one. It's usually because they're like, oh, this is way better because now like as a generalist, there's no way to even research. Who do you call? There's no one to call. There's no one to email because you just pick to talk about throwing a dart. You'd just be picking random people off the internet. But once they pick one, they're like, oh, all of a sudden, I, there are like clear steps that I can take because I've picked, I've, you know, at least picked a vertical or some demographic or platform specialization. So, okay, so I can research like, oh, that was interesting. It doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel right. So let me just pick a different one. And then they, they can maybe cycle through a couple of them, do some research and see what clicks. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I think that's related to uh, one of the things I've a little tiny thing I picked up from Sean D'Souza about workshops is he does not let people work on their own business in his workshops. They work on like some sample business. Mm. I think part of that is so that you don't bring too much baggage into the workshop so that you can actually have a productive structured thing. But also I think it lets you see things from both sides and, and I can see what, how that might benefit someone when they're first, thinking about positioning is like part of it is from your own perspective as the business owner, as the, the artiste, you know, as, as the practitioner. But another part of it is like, can you get the, the world uh, to see you in a way that's productive for your business development? Can you get people to see you in a way that makes you referable and memorable? And, um, and you can just kind of see that from the outside. So I could see there being maybe some benefit to having people, develop a positioning statement for a hypothetical business so they can see, kind of see it from the outside first. Maybe, maybe they'll give a little more courage as they go through the process on their own business. That's a fascinating idea. I often find, normally I speak to software developers and I find that they have a hard time seeing the insanity of hourly billing when I use examples from the software world mm -hmm. or, or even, you know, positioning stuff. But it's laughably obvious when I pick a different profession, like, like home building or massage therapy or something like that. It's just comical. 
to imagine that they would hire somebody on an hourly basis for these other things or a positioning statement from uh, that that is just totally inside baseball self-centered from yeah. someone who's not a software developer all of a sudden they're like i would never hire that person versus yeah. this one yeah david c baker says you're in the jar you can't see the label on the jar from that perspective that's why you need <laughs> outside help it's i mean that's similar awesome. to what alan weiss has said about breathing your own exhaust and mm. you know it's it's kind of the whole fundamental value proposition for hiring an outside consultant they can often see things you can't mm-hmm All right. Shall we move on to? Do we have time for one more question? Should we, maybe I, we should move to picks. I think we should. We can have a little longer show today. I think we well, got, got a few few credits in our show length account. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got. A, I think one that would probably be pretty helpful. Maybe we should have started with this one. Um, okay. So here it goes. Uh, my corporate job is ending soon due to restructuring. I do not want to get another job. Given the need for rapid sales over the next three to six weeks, long-term strategies like content marketing are not a good fit. Any suggestions on how I would make that happen? Anyone? Anyone? Heck yeah. I think we've already <laughs> talked, right? Get out in the real world. Um, yeah, can we assume that this person is going to be willing to fast-track some kind of um, specific positioning or focus, or at least be willing to say, I, I just try to replicate their previous job and, and use that as a basis for positioning. Yeah. Let's, let's assume that from a positioning standpoint, they're not starting from scratch. They know what their value proposition is. They know what they're good at and perhaps why it might be valuable to a particular kind of customer. So let's say they're leaving a corporate job and they're there. Oh, just use a, my only corporate job. I was a FileMaker developer. I worked at staples internally in their advertising department. So theoretically, if this were me back then, I would be saying, uh, I know that I, I can build FileMaker like nobody's business. And I, and I know that that's valuable in certain kinds of advertising agencies for their internal systems, not for their clients. Yeah. Right. And I guess the other assumption is they can talk to anybody. This is not some secret. They have to keep secrets. Correct. Yeah. They've, I mean, there's a lot of things they could put on the table, and this is sort of full court press time. I mean, waiting, like procrastinating on anything for three days at this stage in the game will have these um, cascading effects later, right? Like mm -hmm. it'll mean you have to wait another month to start a project or something like that. So I, I would say, you know, you're you're wanting to not – I mean, you're going to have to overwhelm yourself a little bit. You need to keep it in check. So, um, like asking for referrals, um, networking in person, and uh, cold email would be probably the three things I would start with. I mean, we I'm, can flesh that out in more detail, but I, I would, I, I mean, I also would agree, absolutely right, do not even think about content marketing just think about ways you can directly contact people and and start some kind of conversation. What what do you guys think? Yeah, outreach for sure. Like that was the first word. Like you need to be emailing, contacting, reaching out, networking, uh, connecting as much as possible and as clearly as possible with who you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. 
and like I said, getting in real life and shaking hands, right? Higher up the the trust ladder is the fastest way to get clients because they they trust you more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, being in person is is unbelievable. I think I'm gonna. This will be my pick for this week, so I'll look up the URL uh, before we get there. But Blair ends recently. Was it Blair or uh, David C. Baker? They, one of them recently published an article about uh, planning for the inevitable. And the inevitable is if you're self-employed, a client leaves. And the the um, big version of that is your biggest client leaves. <laughs> I mean, how many of us here have not been through that? I don't, I don't see any hands going up. So, I mean, leaves unexpectedly or on their timeline, not yours. So mm. he, he has a... Um, a recommendation for how to handle that that I thought was that could be relevant in this situation. It's a little different because you're leaving a job, but basically you approach their competitors and say, we have some, you know, fairly fresh, um, highly relevant experience that could be very valuable for you, but it's, it's got a shelf life on it. So we would need to act fast and, you know, you kind of take the sales conversation from there, but he, uh, whoever wrote this, one of those two, uh, you know, awesome guys wrote this. And so this is a playbook that you have kind of sitting at the ready with those clients already listed out and contact information already researched and it's updated every six months or so. So that something like that could be relevant where you basically say, okay, I was working for this kind of company. Let me approach other companies that look a lot like that and, um, try to get in as a, as a, as a freelancer or a contractor or something. I can't say this. I mean, unless you just have like a lot of uh, savings tucked away, time is of the essence in a situation like this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Is I think that's the replacing the gorilla account post. Do you, do you was, remember the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, was, I think it was Blair. Okay. Yep, it was Blair. Thanks, guys. So yeah, I couldn't recommend that stuff highly enough. I have a an answer to this, but I think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to save it for picks. Uh, that I think will be a little bit more information. Uh, shall we move over to picks? Do you guys have stuff this week? This episode is sponsored by Rails Remote Conf. Rails Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference. So if travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in Rails, such as databases, front-end frameworks, or Rails 5.1 and all the new stuff that came out with that. We'll have speakers from all over the Rails community to help you stay current in the Slack room so that you can connect with speakers and attendees in real time. Plus, I'll be there since I'm the MC. It also includes a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 27th, and the call for proposals is open until May 13th. So come join us at railsremoteconf.com. I do now. <laughs> yep. All right. Nice segue, Philip. Yep. Well, this, um, yeah, now that you guys gave me enough clues to quickly find it, this was a uh, webcast at Blair Ends of Win Without Pitching did. And um, he talks about replacing the Gorilla account, having a plan for doing that, knowing that it's inevitable. And it is, trust me, if, you, if you're in this game long enough, you will through, you know, you lose a client and it won't 
the timing won't be to your preferences and it will be painful if you're not prepared for it. So um, what's nice about this webcast, at least for me, um, is there's a text transcript. So you can, uh, you can either read it or listen to it. I'll drop the link in the show notes so that folks can easily find that. And that's my pick for this week. Cool. Curtis? I'm going to pick The 12-Week Year. It is a book about not making annual goals, uh, but making, I guess, quarterly 12-week goals. Uh, under the idea that a lot of the time you make your goal in January, right? And then you kind of work on it a little bit for a month and then you kind of get to the background as you do everything else. And then like October, you look up and you're like, man, I got to work super hard. And in October, somehow you still hit it, even though you wasted half the year, more than half the year. So instead of having a, like a yearly goal, just focusing on the next 12 weeks and making those next 12 weeks um, good, focusing on the actions instead of the outcomes as well, right? So if you, like we were just talking about, if you need clients, then how many contacts does that mean a day you need to make? And making, focusing on those contacts and then the outcomes will take care of themselves. It's a good book. I will be revamping uh, my quarters coming up. Nice. Is that it? Yes, sir. Excellent. Um, all right. So speaking of outreach and that situation where you are, uh, you know, you're suddenly at loose ends and you really want to pack your pipeline as quickly as possible. Friend of the show, Kai Davis recently posted a three part series called the three R's of getting clients. And it is amazing. It has, uh, it advocates pretty much everything we talk about here. We just brought up and gives email templates and all of those things. Um, so you should definitely check that out. Uh, another good tip is, let's see, I'm going to pick, a an episode of the freelance transformation Pro podcast where host uh, matt inglot interviews consulting legend alan weiss and my favorite one of my very favorite things in the podcast uh is now i'm spacing i should have written it down <laughs> Wait, is, it, is, that, is that a bit about marketing jonathan well that see that's my actual favorite part but oh, I, that, okay there's the actual favorite part is that Matt asks, uh, should, who should be a consultant and who shouldn't? And Alan says, well, if you don't love marketing, you shouldn't be a consultant. You should go get a job. And I, I think that's a little strong. I think that you, you can learn to love marketing once you get what it really is and sort of disabuse yourself of the notion that you're a used car salesman. Uh, but that is pretty important. Uh, but there was a there was a referrals thing in there, and now I'm just totally spacing on it. But it doesn't matter, dear listener, because you should listen to the whole thing. Even if you're familiar with Alan's stuff, there's a couple of gems in there that are relatively new. And if you haven't, if you if you aren't familiar with his stuff, it's a good primer on his overall shtick. Uh, so definitely good stuff there. All right, I think that's our show for this week. I look forward to seeing you next week, everyone. We hope to have you there. Bye. Bye. Ciao. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.